What regenerative development proposes is that you spend the first year to 18 months of just really deep listening and, you know, meeting with the community and learning about the story of place and really analyzing all of the environmental conditions and the socio-political issues and try to understand as much as possible so that you can best co-design with that community the best outcomes for that community. Regenerative development practitioners believe that you can actually deliver better returns because you have less resistance when it comes to rezoning and entitlements and getting community support. When the community is behind you, you can accomplish anything. Welcome to the Brave New Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for ambitious leaders ready to get to work, do the work, and create a better built world reality. I'm James Sanderson, founder of Studio Sanderson, a communication consultancy that works with leaders in real estate, design, and the built environment. Just now, recovering from the pandemic and still facing climate change, income equality, and rising sea levels, many cities have a hard path forward. Still, it's worth considering how these difficulties are accelerating a change for the better. Tony Cho is one developer looking to reimagine urban spaces with an eye towards what's next. With his roots in Miami commercial real estate as the founder of Metro One, Cho has built an eco-retreat, revitalized neighborhoods like Wynwood and Little Haiti, and launched a mission-driven organization called, fittingly, The Future of Cities. On today's Brave New Real Estate, We'll talk to Cho about regenerative cities, sustainable rewilding, and how to work with local communities to build strong places that last. Let's get to it. Morning, Tony. Good morning, James. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you to talk about this very timely and important topic, future of cities. So maybe we could start by just outlining the origins of of your kind of latest initiative and exactly what what it does and and where you see the kind of vision heading. Thank you. Yeah. This is the culmination of my entire life's work, I would say, from being born and raised in an intentional community commune by my grandmother in the 70s and 80s. And then, you know, going off and exploring around the world and hospitality and nightlife and eventually finding myself in real estate in South Florida in the heydays and the glory days of you know, early 2000 of Wynwood and the urban core of Miami and South Florida, Fort Lauderdale and that whole region, and really kind of experienced firsthand the power of the creative class and of innovation and of art and culture and how that intersected and impacted real estate values, how that impacts affordability, equity, gentrification, all of these things. And now how it relates to climate change and other impacts that disproportionately affect at-risk communities and underserved communities like those that I've been dealing with for many years in Little Haiti and in Miami, Miami's neighborhood of Overtown, Little Haiti and Liberty City, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of the confluence of, of you know, my life's experience and being a native Floridian and passionate about Florida and all aspects of, you know, the urban and the wild components of it as well. And growing up in kind of the rural area in, you know, a very unpopulated, lush green area 
to living in the urban jungle of Miami for the last 20 plus years on and off. And just my experience of how successful districts, arts and entertainment districts and innovation districts, which I've been involved in, you know, the pros and the cons, the positives and the negatives, right? Because, you know, these neighborhoods are celebrated neighborhoods around the world. Certainly within the United States, the Wynwood Arts District has garnered an incredible amount of recognition. And it's been a pleasure and an honor to be part of that and what it's contributed to the fabric of South Florida and Miami. But also, you know, being cognizant of the shortcomings of these successful neighborhoods. One is pushing out small independent businesses, artists, creatives, innovators, those that were, you know, the foundational catalysts for those neighborhoods can no longer afford to be part of it. And that is just, you know, a story that is consistent around the world. And, you know, in many urban neighborhoods, if not most, I think what inspired my work that culminated into launching the Future of Cities, which now has been an almost three-year endeavor of really deeply thinking and holding this inquiry around how do we co-design and co-create communities, neighborhoods, and cities that are regenerative, that are equitable, that are sustainable, that are thriving. Nothing's going to be perfect, right? Because civilization and cities are an ecosystem representative of many different components, many different aspects from, you know, the political leaders, the urban planners, you know, the private sector, the public sector, all of it, you know, in a melting pot of ideas and controversy and complication, human conditions, and, you know, now dealing with uh, direct impacts of climate change. So really the idea was to synthesize my learnings and then really align and create a coalition of very uh, diverse thinking around city building, but in for the, the next generations, for the future generations with an eye towards a holistic regenerative approach. That was the, the genesis and really wanting to have impact in my life, wanting to be able to impact as many people. And our goal, which is an ambitious goal, is impacting the lives of a billion people. Well, this word regenerative and the regenerative city, can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like compared to our cities today? Well, regenerative compared to degenerative and compared to unsustainable and unaffordable you know, the pandemic is a direct result, the results and the demographic shifts in the United States. You've seen mass exodus from gateway cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, places where the pandemic made it almost unbearable for people to live in dense, closely contained areas. Why? Not enough green space, not access to safe public transportation, <clears throat> not enough equitable housing, not enough affordable housing. Not enough green space, not enough urban gardens and vertical farms and rooftop gardens. So our cities have become uninhabitable and many people are now choosing to live in smaller cities, rural areas, farm lifestyles, because they want to be more in touch with nature. You know, it's not my vision to say what each city or community or neighborhood should look like from an aesthetic or cultural standpoint. That's for the local community to really co-design their best outcomes. What we can do is help people provide best practices, open source information, methodologies, frameworks that we're developing to help people go through the process 
of co-designing their best future city, their best future neighborhood. And regenerative means, you know, something that's actually more than self-sustaining. It's actually, it's actually generating more, more positive feedback than it is extracting, you know, so it's beyond sustainability. So a regenerative model means that the city is doing more than sustaining its own energy needs, its own population needs, its own food needs, its own healthcare needs. It's basically providing more solutions than it is creating problems for itself. So that's what self-generating organism or mechanism is, is it's more like it's in balance with nature producing more positive impact than negative impact on its inhabitants, which are really the stakeholders of these cities. And it's not only human stakeholders, it's other species, animals, plant life, et cetera. How do they exist? What is the health of Biscayne Bay in the city of Miami, which has had a die off and an algal bloom and, you know, all this, these problems with um, pollution and are the fish healthy, you know, is the wildlife healthy how are we living in balance with, with, with nature? What kind of an ecosystem actually exists? And, and I think that that's where people, it may seem a little far out there for them. You know, people are like, do I want wolves and coyotes living in my cities? Rewilding is really just a philosophical concept. It's about really getting more in touch and in balance with nature. It could involve having more species, obviously safely, and I think that there's a space for that in terms of planning, depending on what the geographic area is, depending on what the species are. I mean, I think all those things can be planned for. But really, rewilding is really becoming more in balance with nature and also following biophilic design principles, you know, and basically designing as nature. Nature has evolved over billions of years and really is the most resilient system that exists out there human system is an artificial system that you know is imperfect and has not evolved over you know millions and millions of years and so you know while we're advancing technologically we're regressing in many other aspects so just to touch more on the on the rewilding aspect of this i've read the isabella trees rewilding book who, you know, introduced fauna on a state in the UK to revitalize and rebirth, if you like, the, the environmental ecosystem. It appears that once you let things self-evolve and self-regulate, that it doesn't require as much maintenance and, and, and resources. Is this efficiency aspect one of the, the kind of best business cases for getting more heavily involved with rewilding? Or is that something we're still trying to work out? Our theory is that this is the best business case. You know, right. biophilic design is in harmony with nature and it, it follows principles of more efficient design that's in balance with nature that requires the least amount of, of inputs for the most amount of outputs, whether it's in organic farm, like permaculture principles, or whether it's in, you know, architecture and design with passive housing you know, passive house, you know, designs and, you know, designing where, where there's the most sunlight and gain and where you're going to put solar panels. So I think, you know, evaluating your site and evaluating the, the geography of where you are and that informs your decision, the materials that you use. I mean, the material science space, the construction industry is ripe for disruption. Yeah. There's a whole slew of new solutions that are being introduced that in 10 years from now, the way that we build and the way that we construct and the materials that we use 
will be completely different. And so, like anything, we're, we're heading for a major disruption. So many different aspects kind of coming together in, in what you're doing. Is there some case studies in the back of your mind, things that have inspired your places? I think there's different components of sustainable and regenerative design in cities and neighborhoods that I really like that, you know, that inspire me. I mean, originally the, the, the first future city, you know, there's aspects of it, you know, the Wizard of Odds and the Emerald City was kind of my childhood memory. And my vision of this Emerald City was that it was everything was clean. All the residents were happy and, and educated and cared for and had health care. And that it was fully sustainable, you know, meaning that it produced all of its own energy and was, you know, a closed loop, self-sufficient community. Scandinavia, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, all these kind of Scandinavian countries are examples of successful countries in the sense that they have some of the highest happiness quotients of any countries in the world. And so it depends on how you rate success. Is success financial success only? Is it a happiness indicator? Um, Is it a health indicator? You know, what determines success? And I think these days, it's the balance of all of those things. It's financial, it's social, it's environmental, it's communal. All of those things have to come into line. And so there aren't too many places. I mean, there are specific projects like, you know, and there's specific activations like, in New York, the High Line was, you know, kind James, of a rewilding project. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a public park on an elevated train, right? It's taking some old infrastructure and making it green and making it accessible. And then it becomes public transportation. It's equitable access. It doesn't even charge for access to it. You know, in Miami, we have the, the Underline, which is converting 10 miles of defunct, you know, derelict areas underneath the metro rail. You know, my friend is spearheading this project called the Reef Line, which is seven miles of artificially creating a new reef line. All of those projects are examples to me of rewilding and examples of things that people can take and adopt to other places. For example, you know, we've been supporting Path of the Panther and the Florida Wildlife Corridors. And recently in the Florida legislature, they passed a bill that would protect the Florida Wildlife Corridors you know, from development and over in roadways and all kinds of other things. And that's a framework that can be adopted in other states and other countries. And so it's an organic, holistic approach to development that's looking into all of the factors and not just, I'm looking at this plot, what kind of profit can I extract from it? But it's how do I fit within the greater ecosystem? How can I be a win-win? And I do believe that in order to be successful in these projects, you need to have a public-private partnership component. The government, the public sector, the private sector needs to contribute in order for this to happen, whether it's by providing incentives, whether it's grants, whether it's foundational support. You know, it's very difficult to do, you know, regenerative projects without certain kinds of incentives because they're fairly experimental. You know, you want to be able to give people access and equity and sustainability and things, you know, are these new technologies are still emergent. They haven't really hit mainstream yet. And I think we need to over incentivize them for adoption to happen quicker because we have a very limited timeline to transition from our current fossil fuel based extractive model to a regenerative renewable model that we have to hit in order to keep our temperatures from going above 1.5 degrees Celsius. 
most data out there and most climate scientists agree that when we hit these temperatures, that the impacts are just cataclysmic. And, you know, we have to follow the science and we have to follow the data and we have to prepare for it. Even if we do everything right, I still think there's going to be pain and suffering. We know that over the next 30 years that we're going to go from 80 million uh, refugees today to over a billion refugees, mainly because of climate issues and migration, particularly in Southeast Asia and Africa and other places like that. So I've looked at a lot of projects that are inspiring in the Middle East. There's a variety of different, very ambitious projects and they have huge budgets and architecturally they look great. Um, I haven't been to the Middle East, so I haven't been able to, I liked, you know, I'm, I'm a person that really likes to feel a place and send and walk around. And, you know, I'm a placemaker by, by profession. And so for me, I haven't really spent much time in the Middle East, but I know that they've been really pushing the envelope on sustainability. And there's a bunch of projects out there that I look forward to checking out. Yeah, I, I lived out in Dubai for a while, actually, and, and they have a tremendous amount of space to experiment with new urban environmental concepts. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on. One thing you've managed to get right in your previous projects is is bringing different groups together who maybe don't usually work together. You mentioned a bit of the, the public-private partnerships created in Wynwood and Little Haiti. Can you talk about how you can foster that sense of co-creation, of co-design to build more long-lasting and sustainable neighborhoods and, and places? I think this is the systems theory that anchors regenerative development theory, which was largely developed by Regenesis Group, which is Bill Reed and Pamela Mang and these guys who are advisors of ours. And basically their theory, and, and some of it is intuitive and instinctive that I applied when we were in Wynwood and, and, in, and in Little Haiti. Some of it is more practical. And really, I think the traditional method of development was, you know, a developer, predominantly male, predominantly white, at least in this country, um, would identify a piece of property they would buy and put, they would do a highest and best analysis. Where can they make the most money? And really, that was their main consideration. And what regenerative development proposes is that you spend the first year to 18 months of just really deep listening and, you know, meeting with the community and learning about the story of place and really analyzing all of the environmental conditions and the socio-political issues and try to understand as much as possible so that you can best co-design with that community the best outcomes for that community. And we believe, you know, meaning um, regenerative development practitioners, believe that you can actually deliver better returns because you have less resistance when it comes to rezoning and entitlements and getting community support. When the community is behind you, you can accomplish anything. You know, the community will provide. You know, when there's momentum, you can pretty much get what you want, you know, because you've earned trust and you have integrity and you're doing it that way. Now, financially, it's not always the people can't afford necessarily to sit on a property for a year, a year and a half. And that's where the financial incentives and the social and environmental practices need to come more in alignment. And so most people were colonizers are saying, oh, I'm going to 
buy this piece of land. I don't care who was there before, whether it was Native Americans or African Americans or whomever. I'm going to put a golf course there. Why? Because that's what's going to make the most money. Does that really actually serve the community? You look at New York and London and, you know, the, the wealthiest places in the world, most of the, the, the housing stock, a, a good percentage of it is second, third, fourth, fifth homes where people spend less than a couple of weeks in and they sit vacant in places where you have then millions of people living in poverty in abhorrent conditions. You have all of this vacant luxury real estate. So when you think about it, do, do people need 10 apartments? Do they need 20 apartments? I mean, so, and I'm not proposing something socialistic. I'm just proposing something that's more in balance. And it's really about, really about incentivizing. Why, if you're a developer and you're going to take the risk to take on a, a massive loan, would you go and do something that's more experimental? Why wouldn't you just do something that has a proven record like multifamily or luxury condos when you can make the most amount of money? It's the easiest to finance. Why are you going to do crazy projects like Winwood and Magic City like I've done? And I've proven that, you know, if you're in it for the long haul and you have staying power, that's the other thing, then you can really achieve outsized returns. You know, on average, my projects over the last 10 years have achieved north of a 40% IRR. And these are long-term visions. And that's why I'm working within opportunity zone frameworks, because that's a minimum of 10 years. So I think you have to take a long, and it's not that you can't monetize along the way. It's just that you're not you know, coming in and flipping properties and not adding value and just kind of doing that doesn't really help develop and create regenerative communities. And so you really want to put in roots and anchor it and co-create something. The more you co-design and co-create, we believe the better outcomes you're going to have. And, you know, and Winwood is a prime example of that. It was a collection of vision aligned property owners and developers came together around a set of values, which was Wynwood Arts District and being a preeminent cultural and arts destination for South Florida and for the world, helping the emerging street art scene, you know, amplify it, get it out there. Then technology hit. And we partnered with the city of Miami to jointly rezone the whole area. We created a business improvement district, a self-taxing district that we taxed ourselves so that we could fund our own security, our own curator for art and help property owners identify who are the best, better artists and things like that. And that, the result is there. You can see what that collaboration and the city got behind what we were doing. We collaboratively rezoned the area. We didn't ask for the highest buildings because we were in a traditionally warehouse district. So we, we got approval for five to 12 stories. And then we also further incentivized people to sell development rights and keep the existing warehouses, the single story, because that also builds character of the district. So it's a combination of new density and old adaptive reuse warehouses, and then incorporating street art into the new buildings to have continuity of what was the genesis of that place. And the result is magnificent. The only downside of my observation of Wynwood is that it's unaffordable now. <laughs> That's the only, and if there were incentives, and there is a public benefits program, and there are you know certain types of incentives, but it doesn't go far enough. If there were incentives that each project needed to have a certain amount of affordable um, housing for artists, for example, as part of the zoning, because 
then you know what? Then that would be an improvement. So I think those kind of innovations and evolution in kind of the code and building codes need to be taken into consideration. You talked a little bit earlier about growing up on, a, on an ashram and what you owned was shared and, and everybody's working together for the common good. It'd be interesting to just hear a little bit more about how you've yeah used that to drive you forward. Definitely. My upbringing has informed many of my professional decisions. And, you know, I went completely the opposite. I, uh, when I left the spiritual commune, I became, went to college and I became a nightlife promoter, and, you know, wanted to experience all aspects of, you know, the material and spiritual spectrum that was out there. And, and I recognize value and beauty in all of it. And it's all experience. And so it's all valid. Probably the most important component of what it translates through into my life now is community. Everything, whether it's Apple, iPhone, whether it's Tesla, whether whatever, whether it's a product, whether it's a, a neighborhood, whether it's a community, you know, community is central to all of all of these things being successful. People want to be belong something. They want to be part of something that where they have shared values. And it makes life better. You know, it makes life better to have community. Do you think communities become a bit of a buzzword? And, you know, there's been people who have been using it, right? And being accused of greenwashing and all that kind of stuff. Do you have any fear that we're glossing over a lot of these things with some of the language? There's an incredible amount of greenwashing happening out there. And there's a lot of pressure, particularly on corporates and companies to go net zero, be carbon neutral, be equitable, be fair. There's a whole diversity, equity, inclusion movement. And I think that's it's needed and it's important. And, you know, I think it's better that it's there, you know, even if people are faking it in, in the beginning, at least they're faking you know, it. At least, it. at least they're aware of the importance of it. And it's better it's better that than the, you know, than the alternative. So yeah. I think people can sense whether things are authentic or not authentic. And I think that that's what makes the difference between, you know, usually between a successful community campaign and an unsuccessful community campaign. You know, the more connected the developer becomes with the neighborhood, the community, the more they're part of it. And so the more time they spend in it, you know, and are not, you know, trying to develop remote control, the better results and outcomes they're going to have. Fantastic. You said you've been working on uh, the future cities for the last last three years. How much has COVID shifted your your vision or accelerated it? You know, I was originally going to launch a year ago because I've been working on this platform for three years. And then the pandemic happened and, you know, everything changed and everybody's perspective changed. And then the thesis only became more strong through the pandemic of people wanting transition and change and rethinking all systems, financial systems, political systems. You know, there was the Black Lives Matter movement that happened. There was the crazy election that we all went through that we're still dealing with remnants of today. So there was a lot of upheaval, a lot of transformation, you know, metamorphosis. And I think it was kind of like the butterfly and the moss crystalline, you know, the crystallis that came together, which is this gooey, imaginal cell material that has now been the kind of foundational blocks for reimagining a new civilization. And I was in nature a lot of the pandemic. 
And, you know, for me, it was about getting re you know, reconnected with my source with nature and really witnessing in the conversations that we've had, that I had over that time, many hundreds of conversations with people all over the world about regenerative development, sustainability, community, future of cities type conversations. And I just progressively started meeting more and more people who were really open to this concept that before it was, you know, I, I, I created a green building resource center in Wynwood 16 years ago, and no one really paid attention to it. It was way too early. You know, people didn't understand the purpose of it, the urgency of it, why it mattered, et cetera. And now these ideas, people are, you know, there was great. And, you know, even, even the use of regenerative over sustainable is now really transitioned. You're starting to see that a lot more. And so we believe that we can help build and inspire a movement. And we get back to how are you going to impact the lives of a billion people? It's through open sourcing and sharing these ideas that then they become part of their DNA and their ethos, whether it's developers, city planners, you know, government leaders, politicians, whomever, you know, by learning these, these ideas and then taking hold of them and then sharing them, that's how we're going to disseminate this information that will inspire people, you know, to do whatever project at every level, whether it's an investment or whether they're buying a condo and say, you know, I want to, you know, incorporate composting into my condo. And now there's a new hydroponic system that's affordable. I can grow all my own fruits and vegetables right on my balcony. And I don't have to go and shop for these things as much anymore. And really being part of the solution, I think technology and products are catching up to that to really provide those solutions because people, I think, got scared about being self-sufficient. You know, there's a lot of people wondering, you know, what happens if there's another pandemic or there's a food crisis or a water crisis, which we know are eminent crises that are we're facing along with a climate crisis. One of the things that the pandemic has done, obviously, is it's, it's highlighted a lot of other cities on the map than that we maybe didn't know about so much. And obviously we know about Miami and Austin and there's sort of smaller second tier cities. I think people like, like to call them Boise, Idaho, that are seeing lots of people coming in newer cities, if you like, than New York or San Francisco. Is there an approach to this that, that, that you've seen of like how you rewild and these kind of smaller places that, uh, or, or even I suppose the, the, the flight to the exurbs or the suburbs, right? There's, there's a different kind of focus of, of, what city used to mean now than I think pre-pandemic? I think it's actually easier in the smaller secondary tertiary markets to apply some of these principles because I think that the powers that be are more open-minded and malleable to change than in some of the older, more established gateway cities like New York, San Francisco, LA, London, et cetera. But I think that these principles, because of the speed at which information travels now, and so many more people are connected, especially because of the pandemic, because now you have, you know, grandmas and grandpas that are using Zoom now, which weren't a year ago, because they had no choice. If they wanted to be connected and see people, they had to do what we're doing now on Zoom. So that has really, I think, changed the whole game around information travel and, and also information equity. And there's a big movement to be able to supply everybody with free access to internet because now it's a necessity for education. Yeah. You can't learn and you can't be part of this economy without having internet. It's just now you can't be competitive. You can't get an education. 
and our real estate strategy, you know, our investment strategy is really focused on secondary and tertiary markets in the Sunbelt states, because that's where a lot of the growth is. And how you define the exurbs and the suburbs, it will define the cities as well, because some people want to have a backyard, they want to have a garden, but there's ways to think about that. I'm sure people who have a single family home in the exurbs or in the suburbs would love to have an in-laws quarter where they can generate revenue or a tiny home. And in most places, the zoning prohibits that. So in transportation to allow for that. So I think we need to rethink the suburbs, the exurbs and the city centers. And personally, I don't think there should be any, any cars allowed in the urban center. I think that should be pedestrian and, and micro mobility, you know, bikes and, and scooters and types, because we know when we go to Europe and other places where we see that type of environment, it's a much more desirable place to live. It's much happier. It's much more thriving. It's much more connected. I mean, how do you feel when you're on 95 or on the highway in just, you know, a parking lot of cars versus, you know, being in Prague in the summer and walking around streets filled with people with no cars is just a completely different essence and feeling. It's more human. And, you know, the automobile has dehumanized us in a lot of ways. And besides being unsustainable and relying on fossil fuels and creating a lot of needs for highways, things like that, it just separates us. Yeah. What they're doing in Paris now, right? They're, they're going to completely pedestrianize the whole, whole center. I don't, I don't think it'll happen in New York uh, anytime soon, but as you said, um, it's great to see that, you know, there's a lot more people thinking about this seriously, right? Do you have any technologies that you're, you're seeing as, as valuable to rewilding, regenerative in particular? Well, I'm seeing a lot of really interesting tech in hydroponics, aquaponics, vertical farms, containerized farms. Those types of solutions, I think, are really exciting. And just kind of the level of production and efficiency that each new data and, and generation comes up with. You know, I'm seeing a lot of stuff around, you know, health tech as well, analyzing sewage, smart sensors, wearables, you know, and then the integration of the smart home, the smart well home, which I really think is the future where you can have basically an off-grid home. That's also kind of your telemedicine connected facility that, you know, understands your biometrics, your blood, kind of what's going on. It can help with preventative and proactive medicine uh, and integrative holistic medicine solutions, and which I think can take a big, a serious amount of pressure off the medical systems and particularly the emergency rooms. There's a lot of advancements in the material science space, which I'm really excited about from everything from 3D printed homes to prefab and modularized containerized housing to um, next generation building materials like hempcrete, which is not next generation. It's previous generation right. because they've been building with hempcrete for a long time, 3D printed homes and buildings. So again, I think that the construction industry is prime for disruption. It's one of the industries that has been slowest to respond and has been kind of static for the last hundred years. You know, we've been building buildings with concrete and steel for a very long time. The method is completely unsustainable. Yeah. And if you recognize that the built environment will double in size, you know, in the next 30, 30 years, everything that we've built up till now will double or triple. If we use the same materials and the same methodology, 
we're going to be in a very bad shape. We're accelerating all the things that we don't want, pollution and climate change and CO2 emissions. And just to, you know, I, th- I think just to produce the world's concrete every year accounts for something like eight or 10% of all the world's CO2 emissions. Yeah, and to operate the buildings and just the whole life cycle of the construction building industry is about 50% of all carbon emissions. So I think we have to start there. You know, yes, it's great to reduce emissions in automobiles and cars and in airplanes and aviation, but that only accounts for a small fraction. I'd rather go for the, the larger piece of the pie. I mean, we have to do it all, right? We have to, yeah. we have to be a comprehensive all approach. Do you feel a, a sense of urgency given, you know, we're seeing people are coming coming back to cities, employers are saying some people need to come back and there's a sense that people just fall back into as things were before. How do you think we can get this, this message and case studies out there quicker? I think what we need to do is we need to provide as much information and education as possible starting from a very young age, we need to disseminate as much information through the channels, through social media, through the news media. And we need to be doing demonstration projects that are supported by the public and private and foundational sectors, you know, that can be demonstration projects that other people can emulate because everybody asks me, well, what is the prime example of a future city that you would replicate? And there isn't any that I'm aware of. If you find one, let me know, because some have certain aspects that are cool, but they don't really, you know, they fall short in many other aspects. So there's nothing that I would say. There's aspects of projects I've been involved in in Magic City and in Wynwood um, that I think are relevant, but, you know, they fall short in other areas. And when we were talking about the Middle East, and you can also talk about China, you know, sustainability for me is not about necessarily building new cities. It's working with the existing infrastructure that we have that's failing us and trying to adapt. The most sustainable thing to do is not build any more cities. The most sustainable thing to do is to adapt what we already have and live with what we've got and make it worthwhile. But, you know, we have a growing population, although there's there's competing data out there now that basically says the U.S. population is stabilizing because the newer generations are having less, less kids, but certainly not in Africa and in Asia, that isn't the case. And so if we're going to continue to see the population grow, and we're gonna, then we're going to have to grow in a smart, efficient, regenerative way, then I think there's so much failing infrastructure that we have already that needs to be adaptively repurposed that I think we should focus on that. You know, I think that, that's, that's where I want to focus on. So designers, developers, construction specialists listening to this, how do they get involved in the future of cities in your, in your organization? What, how can they participate? There's a variety of different ways to be involved in the platform. And if you go to our website, which is focities.com, and I can put a, the link in the chat if you want. There's a, we can become a member, you know, as simple as becoming a member, which is free of charge, and we can send you any of the thought leadership or the articles that we publish, you know, around sustainability, rewilding, um, regenerative placemaking, et cetera, you can follow us on social media because we're doing a lot. We're, we're providing a lot of education and information. You can become a strategic partner. If you're an organization that's aligned with us, we can co-author thought leadership. We can do webinars together, seminars, events, where we've partnered with, you know, all types of different partners, 
Uh, if you have a product that you think or a company or a technology that you think is applicable to the future of cities, you can submit it to us through the venture arm and we will look at it. If you want to invest with us, either on the venture side or the real estate side, you can invest alongside of us in one of our SPVs for a specific real estate project or a specific venture investment. And we've just made our first venture investment, uh, which is exciting. It's a mobility tech company coming out of Europe that we think is going to be revolutionary and we think is going to really transform micromobility and help really de-emphasize the automobile. And so we're going to be investing in more companies and incubating, accelerating companies. And if you want to invest in opportunity zones, non-opportunity zones, there's a lot of ways to plug in. If you're a university, you know, we're looking at co-authoring and doing research together, working with different PhD and graduate student fellows to do different, you know, thought leadership pieces. Um, so there's, there's many different ways, but primarily, or you can advocate with us if there's public policy that you want to spearhead and lobby for that is aligned with our system. That's something that I think is, we didn't talk about that very much, but public policy really critical to the future of cities being sustainable and regenerative. We don't have policies and building codes that allow for the types of cities that we're we're envisioning, envisioning, then we're just going to be stopped cold in our tracks. Yeah. That, that, that seems to be a big, um, dialogue about rezoning in existing cities to allow for even simply, right, that, that um, all these offices that we people are no longer going to be using, what do we do with them? And we have to rezone and, and to adapt to them. The traditional one is, is the parking lot. You know, in 10 years, we may not be needing parking lots anymore. Right. If we have a, automated if autonomous vehicles and yeah. drone transportation takes off like it's planned to be, you know, what are we doing with those hundreds of millions of billions of square feet of parking garages out there are they going to be adapted to office or residential or parks or vertical farm cloud kitchens exactly and some of them are being already adapted to cloud kitchens so so tony this has been super interesting and thank you so much for taking the time to share your your vision with us today it's been great to talk to you i'll put links for faucities.com and some of the other things that we've referenced today in the show notes. And I hope to speak to you again soon and, and, and wish you well with the future of cities. Thank you. Thank you, James. Pleasure talking to you and good luck with everything. Thanks for the work you're doing. Great. Thank you. Bye. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Brave New World podcast from Studio Sanderson. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check out the podcast episode details or visit studiosanderson.com for links to additional resources and recommended reading from myself and others. See you next time.